Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and for this episode 30 of the podcast, we are finally at the final chapter, chapter 11 of The Lives of Bees by Thomas Seeley. As always, before I dig deep into what this episode is all about, I would like to give some news from the homestead. But first, actually, I need to do a correction corner. So if you follow me on Instagram or you are subscribed to my blog on the website, you would have already seen this. But I want to make sure that for those of you who just listen along, you also got this information. So I'm very grateful that a listener actually pointed out to me that I had incorrectly stated that the active ingredient in frontline, which is the topical treatment we give to dogs for uh, flea and tick prevention, and which I had used on my chickens, I had said the active ingredient was ivermectin. And that's wrong. I got it muddled with heart guard and tri heart and those heartworm preventatives. The active ingredient in Frontline is actually Fipronil. Now, the good news is it is still safe for use on poultry. In fact, the page in my Chicken Health Handbook, which is such a wonderful book that I I know I recommend a number of times, it's right by Ivermectin as an option for treating various uh, pests on your chickens. So Fipronil is safe for use on poultry and it is as I stated where you apply one to two small drops on the back of the chicken's neck or between the wings. However what kind of confused me is going back through the book it is not said to treat lice it's more used for fleas something called facial fleas and also tick infestations. But since I applied it to Agatha, I haven't seen any more lice on her. So I'm going to monitor the situation and let you know how things go there. But stepping back, I did say that ivermectin had an oral and topical application. And that's all correct. Ivermectin either comes in an oral suspension formula or in drops that you apply on this skin of the chicken and is said to treat lice as well as fleas. So I do sincerely apologize for my error there. Um, I'm very relieved that despite my little whoopsie, I didn't recommend going out and using a chemical that would have caused all your chickens to drop dead. Um, So I will do better in future. I'm very sorry for that. And huge thanks to the reader who, or the listener, sorry, who reached out to me. I really appreciate the correction. And, um, and as always, I love to hear from you guys and I have no fear of being corrected. So if you hear something that doesn't sound right, please do be in touch. Now, moving on to the homestead, real quick, I'll just tell you that um, about two weeks ago, I sold the last of my pink tongue skink babies. As you might recall, baby season stretched on much longer than usual this year due to shipping delays caused by the pandemic. But keeping the babies, which in previous years had been difficult for me, this year we streamlined things enough that we had the space, we had better caging set up, and it actually really seemed to benefit my business. Uh, There were breeders who, despite the issues with shipping, decided to go ahead and do it, which is their right, and, and, and thankfully it all worked out well for them. But I just really didn't feel comfortable with it. 
And so what seemed to happen is not only did I have some loyal customers who'd been on my wait list already and were just happy to continue waiting, but I also had people who had missed out on the earlier batch of babies from other breeders and so reached out to me to see if I had any left and lo and behold, I did. So I had no issue selling them this year. In fact, I had people who sadly I couldn't provide skinks for and that's nice because usually I've had to push a little bit to sell the last couple of babies so it was a very successful year for me Um, I only had one shipping issue Uh, it went through a hub that I found out belatedly was actually known for causing a lot of the delays but I was so reassured because the company that I use um, who is actually the company that they only ship reptiles and they're the ones with the FedEx account and I use them and they're like my intermediary to FedEx. They were so on top of everything. They made sure that the babies were somewhere temperature controlled and after a 24 hour delay, so it actually took 48 hours for these babies to get to their new home, they were still in great shape and there was no crisis and I was so relieved. So I feel especially grateful for the companies that I've used and I'm very pleased with how things went. What particularly tickled me this year is um, I have people who contact me about the skinks who actually aren't customers of mine, but have questions about the care. And I always try and do my best to let people know how I keep my skinks and what I recommend. And it doesn't matter to me whether you bought from me or another breeder, I'm trying to help you in any way that I can. And I had one of those people reach out to me. She bought from another breeder. She had some questions. And what was so nice is that she actually was recommended to me by people on TikTok. And that really blew my mind because TikTok is one of those things that I have no presence on. I don't use. I don't really understand how it works. I'm a bit like an old lady when it comes to some of these new things. But apparently word has got out that I am helpful and you don't have to be a customer to chat with me and give and have me give you advice. And that's how she heard about me. And um, she was so sweet and she was so appreciative and it was great. So that kind of blew my mind a little bit. But it's really nice that people are hearing nice things about me and hearing that I try and be helpful, I try and be diligent. And so I'm excited about going into next year and I will only have one pairing next year. So it's going to be a much smaller operation, but I think it's for the best and I'm looking forward to it. As for more traditional homestead things, um, my chickens are continuing to molt. In fact, um, Cracker just is going through the heavy part of hers and it looks like she just exploded in the run. I'll put some pictures up on the website. It's just white feathers everywhere. Agatha looks especially shabby. Uh, Her blood feathers are just beginning to unfurl. So she looks a little bit like she's got some rather stylish dreadlocks between the gaps in her feathers. Um, But she tends to always molt before everyone else so she's usually all ready for winter long before the other chickens are and that seems to be going ahead in that area. Bubbles who is the special need chicken that I almost lost to heat stress which really wasn't that long ago she's not been acting great again and at first I thought it was just that she was uncomfortable during the molt because it is unpleasant unpleasant 
All of the chickens are a little subdued during this time of year. But she was eating, she was responding to her favourite treat, so I felt a little better. Well, I actually just got in from the chicken coop and I'm not happy with what I'm seeing. She seems lethargic, she's not really responding to me like she used to and I noticed that she has a dirty vent and it looks like she's got diarrhea again despite a recent treatment for worms and I when I picked her up I was very unhappy to find that her abdomen feels quite swollen now that's a new one for me and I did some quick looking through my chicken health handbook while I was on hold with my vet And it's looking like she could have some kind of infection. And it could be anything. It could be an infection of the cloaca area. It could be further into the reproductive tract or into the, um, excuse me, intestinal tract. So I think at this point, it's gone beyond me treating her at home. I have a vet appointment for her on Thursday. That was the soonest I could get, sadly. And I will update um, with news on that on my Instagram with how bubbles went on. I just hope that it's not serious enough that I'll lose her before then. Um, Bubbles is, all my babies are so sweet and I, and I love her. So fingers crossed for Bubbles and I'll let you know how things get on. Speaking of sick hens, <laughs> uh, one of my ginger hens in the big flock was acting really weird last week. Um, I found her hunched up. She had kind of a vacant expression and she wasn't really responding to me as if she could see me, but she could clearly hear me. And this concerned me because some of you might recall that when I had to have Ginger, my um, one of my favorite hens, put to sleep, she she went blind basically. And after she lost her vision, she very rapidly went downhill with like staggering loss of coordination. There was something very clearly wrong with her, and so I had to euthanize her. So this little Ginger hen, who didn't seem to be responding to visual cues had me very concerned and because she was still ambulatory I left her alone but I went back out in the evening to make sure that she had gone into the coop which she had and not only that but she was up in a nest box which is a good sign and then the next morning I went out bright and early to see how she was doing and she was completely back to normal And in hindsight, the only thing I can think is that she was in shock, that maybe something had scared her and she hadn't recovered yet. And I've seen something similar before. We've had a big tree branch fall out there and it scared the heck out of all the birds and they were just really shell-shocked and, you know, not responding like normal. It did take them a while to shake it off. And that seems to be what was going on with her. And maybe what should have clued me in a little bit was that Cracker, my boss hen, who I often call Queen Bitch because she's so aggressive, she was actually staying very close to the little ginger and kind of seeming to give her support and protecting her. And that's weird because usually if Cracker senses that a hen is actually sick, she will attack that hen and she will encourage the other girls to attack that hen. But in this case, she seemed protective. So I do wonder if something gave them a heck of a scare and poor little ginger girl just needed a little extra to recover. So I'm very relieved that she's okay. But of course, that happened last week and now this week, Bubbles is sick and needs the vet. So... I'm always coming and going over here. 
In terms of the garden, you know, we're slowing down here. I don't have a huge amount to report. Uh, my corn cobs ended up being very, very small and I just decided to feed them to the chickens who loved them. So it was disappointing, but I do feel like I have a better feel for what I did wrong and can do better next year. One of my bean plants does have some really impressive looking beans on it. So that's exciting. And I might get, you know, a very, very small harvest, but better than nothing. And I am realizing again that I'm just not a great gardener. There's a lot that I have to learn. And some of it is just laziness. I like to plant things and forget about them. And when it comes to vegetables, you often can't do that. And I need to be more on top of things and be more present and all that kind of stuff. Now, the big news, if you follow my Instagram, is uh, that I took a tumble uh, seven to ten days ago and I cut open my wrist. And I didn't put the whole story out there, but the it's kind of a comedy of errors. I was standing on my deck cleaning my hive tools and I have a hive tool that is flat and curves. And then I have one that looks like a little crowbar where the end curls upwards for like hooking underneath things. And the edges are quite sharp on that one. And I was cleaning them of propolis and a bee flew at my face. And because I was just on my deck, I wasn't paying attention, it startled me. So I stepped backwards. One of the dogs was behind me. I tripped over the dog. While trying not to fall on the dog, I ended up landing with the hand holding the hive tools out first. And this caused the curve edge of the hive tool to slash open my wrist. Now, this might surprise you because I am the woman who, if one of my chickens drops dead, will take them into the garage and dissect them and try and figure out cause of death. But I'm actually not good with fresh blood. So if something is dead and I'm cutting it open, okay. If I am bleeding profusely, I do not handle it well. So I basically panicked. I started crying. I was convinced that this was it, um, that it was a lot worse than it was. And so my husband, bless him, was like, all right, let's go to the ER. And I'm just sitting there going, no, call an ambulance. So yes, we called the ambulance. By the time it was on its way, which was very quick, actually, thank you, New Franklin Fire Department. Um, By the time I knew they were on their way, I was like, oh no, I shouldn't really have called them. I didn't need them. But they got there. They were very nice. They patched it up and helped stop the bleeding and basically said look you don't need to be in the ambulance but you do need to go and get stitches so they left and then we went to the urgent care center and I got all stitched up and it it was this whole thing and it wasn't very pleasant but it the healing process has been great um I haven't had as much issues with it as I thought it did inhibit movement a little bit and I couldn't lift things over a certain weight but nothing too bad. I actually have been able to go out to the hives um, near the end of last week. So that was really good. The biggest issue has been that I obviously caused some damage to um, the nerves involved with carpal tunnel syndrome. I do have carpal tunnel. I've made it a lot worse because of the fall. I have had constant tingling and numbness in my thumb and fingers since it happened but it is improving the downside is that as it improves I get what I call nerve zaps which are really sharp 
uh, like firings of the nerves in that hand. It's very unpleasant and it does make me drop things. But I have spoken to my doctor. I just got my stitches out today and we're just going to monitor how the nerve healing progresses. And uh, if it gets any worse or if it doesn't get any better, then I'll be going to see a specialist. But fingers crossed, I anticipate that it will be all sorts and everything will be fine. But my recommendation for y'all is um, maybe don't handle hive tools around dogs. Is that the lesson here? Maybe I will definitely have to be a lot more careful. Now, in terms of my hives, last episode, I shared that um, my mite levels were really high. I was very worried about them. It's only been two weeks, so it's too soon for me to retest. I need another two weeks before I feel like that's a good period of time. Uh, But of course, I'll report back. I will say that the hives that have Apivar on them, I've seen a lot of dead mites on the bottom boards of those hives, which is a good sign. The one thing I'm really unhappy about is that my Saskatraz mother queen, so that is the original queen that I got in a package this year, that hive doesn't seem to be responding as well to treatment and I'm not sure why. Um, In fact, for the first time ever when I was in that hive, I could see varroa mites on adult bees and I have never seen that before. Um, It was only three or four bees, but that's not what I ever want to see. And the population seems to be dwindling in that hive and I'm just very worried about them. I'm worried about their chances. Um, That's definitely the hive that I have the greatest concerns for. I expected to see an increase in brood production in my hives because we're going into that time of year where the bees are working on both um, food stores via honey for the coming winter, but also they need to start producing or the queen needs to start producing the bees that are going to get her through the winter. And actually, in all of the hives that I've seen, bar one, because I haven't had time to get in there yet, They are not interested in babies at all. And it's all about the honey. So all of the hives are packing in honey wherever they can. They're backfilling cells and there's almost no brood in any of my hives. And I'll be honest, that is scaring the crud out of me. I really think that we should be seeing brood. But because all the hives are doing it, I have to have faith that my bees know what the heck they're doing and that I need to let them do it and try not to panic. It does occur to me as well that less brood right now during this spike in Varroa is actually a good thing because Varroa reproduction happens in capped brood cells and if there aren't capped brood cells or if there are very little capped brood cells then hopefully that's going to help with this Varroa infestation. Now thinking ahead If things don't improve, I've already decided that I'll be sacrificing the newly mated queen in nuke number two and installing the Saskatraz mother queen in there instead. Um, The reason for this is that the newly mated queen, um, I'm not as confident about what, I'm trying to think about how to phrase this. I'm not as confident about the genetic strength of the eggs that she will produce because she was mated at a time of year where there are a lot less drones. So there's less competition for drones, which means that there are chances that it's not the strongest and the best drones, period, that we're able to mate, but just the strongest and the fastest of the, you know, dwindling population that's been left so far. Um, I guess there's also an argument to be made that other drones would have been more successful earlier in the year. 
either way, I'm just not as confident about what I would see from her. And the other reason I chose this nucleus colony is because they also have a high mite load. So if I need to combine two colonies, I don't want to combine a colony that has really high mites and one that has almost none, because then I'm just like, well, I'm affecting the health of the healthy colony by producing, adding the unhealthy colony. But in this case, it's kind of like if they both have mites around the same levels, I can continue to treat at those levels and I'm not sacrificing a healthy colony. I'm just trying to shore up two crappy ones. So the queen would have to go. But the Saskatraz mother queen, based on how the colony looks right now, she's in a deep hive body and then she has a medium on top. I don't think she can survive with that much space based on what I was seeing population wise. But if I condense her down into a nucleus colony, I think she has a better chance. And you might recall that I need two nucleus colonies to overwinter because you press them together until they're basically the same as having deep boxes. And then you wrap them together and you treat them um, together for the winter. And basically they share heat through the walls of the nucleus colonies and that's how you can overwinter them. So basically watch this space. It's not looking great out there. I'm very disappointed. (laughs) I'm very despondent and worried, but I'm doing my best to stay positive and just keep using the tools in my wheelhouse. You know, I'm treating, I'm monitoring, I'm feeding as needed. I'm gonna keep inspecting and I'll report back with everything that I find out as I find out about it. All right, so we've caught up on what's going on with me and my madness and my bees and my chickens and my lizards and all the dogs and all the good stuff. So here we are, we're on chapter 11 of the lives of bees. The book review that sometimes felt like it would never end is about to end. Hooray! So chapter 11 is entitled Darwinian Beekeeping and it opens with a quote like all the other chapters. And this quote is by Leslie Bailey from the book Honey Bee Pathology, which was originally published in 1981. Beekeeping today is still as it has always been. The exploitation of colonies of a wild insect. The best beekeeping is the ability to exploit them and at the same time to interfere as little as possible with their natural propensities. Now, this is a very aptly chosen quote and it's worth rereading at the end of this chapter because that's basically what Seeley thinks is that if we can work with our bees to get either honey or pollination or just the sheer enjoyment of keeping them but interfere with their natural life cycle as little as possible that's the best way to do it and I think this probably caught his eye because it's back from 1981 and that's a fair time ago And it's just as relevant now as it was then. So the first 10 chapters of this book reviewed the honeybee colony as a whole, from its annual cycles, reproduction, nest building, food collection, thermoregulation and colony defence. It also provided an overview of beekeeping from a cultural perspective, as well as one of management. As these topics are delved into with greater detail, it's become clear that beekeeping as a form of animal husbandry often comes into direct conflict with the natural life cycle and rhythm of the honeybee. 
Seeley notes that the intention of this final chapter is to integrate these two themes by applying what has been learned about the honeybee towards our management practices. He intends to respect the natural cycle of honeybees while also being able to benefit from their hard work as producers of honey and as very important pollinators. He addresses this goal in two stages. First, to directly compare the ways in which a wild colony lives compared to a managed one. And second, finding ways that beekeepers can effectively manage their practices to reduce stress on our beloved honeybees, which will in turn lead to greater health for the colony. And I'm going to quote Seeley directly here. We will see that the essence of doing this is to manage colonies of honeybees in ways that enable them to live as much as possible under conditions like those in which they evolved and thus to which they are adapted. We will also see that this often requires putting the needs of the bees before those of the beekeeper. So this next section is wild colonies versus managed colonies. And it's basically a list of direct comparisons. Throughout this book, we've seen how differently we keep our bees compared to the way they live in the wild. The honeybee environment of evolutionary adaptation, which is abbreviated as EEA, is vastly different to how we have come to house and work our managed colonies. And sadly, our way of doing things has caused undue stress on the bees and affected their overall health. This section will clearly list out the ways in which living conditions between the two, wild and managed, differ and give a summation of each point. So the first one, number one, colonies are genetically adapted versus are not genetically adapted to location. There are 30 subspecies of Apis mellifera and each are uniquely adapted to their climate, season, flora, predators and diseases in their native regions. These adaptations occurred as part of natural selection, resulting in bees that are uniquely capable of thriving in their native location. Within these subspecies, we also see ecotypes, which are populations that are fine-tuned to their specific local conditions. A prime example of this geographical adaptation can be seen in the ecotype of A.M. Mellifera, which is the dark European honeybee, that lives in the Landes region of southwestern France. Their annual cycle is centred around the prolific bloom of Ling Heather, Coluna vulgaris, in August and September. To meet the needs of their bountiful forage, these colonies have a second peak of brood rearing in August. When colonies from outside the area were brought in and examined, it was found that the difference in their brood rearing was indeed genetic. This shows us that the common practice of shipping queens all over the US, as well as moving colonies hundreds and thousands of miles away for pollination contracts, is likely forcing colonies to live in environments for which they have not adapted and are thus ill-suited for. Quick side note, and I'm going to be doing this throughout throughout this chapter so bear with me but quick side note one this does refer a lot to the US particularly North America because that is where Seeley is doing his research so I apologize if it seems too specific but that's what we're working with but I hope you can see how what he's learning here can be applied to other regions and other countries and secondly I have to just laugh at the fact that I said France and not France Um, 
a lot of Americans don't realize that just like in the US where you have your northern states and your southern states and there's quite a big variation in accents in between we're the same in England and my mother is from northern England and my uh, father's family is from southern England and my accent is southern England and we say France but I've been listening to a really awesome podcast not on bees actually on um true true crime called all killer no filler and it's two british comedians who are from the north and so i keep on picking up northern pronunciations and sounding like my mum so um i apologize if i'm all over the place with like france and france and bath and bath today but um apparently i'm very easily influenced and there's a little british trivia for you (laughs) moving on number two Colonies live widely spaced in the landscape versus crowded in apiaries. Beekeepers keep colonies close together and we do this for our own benefit because it's just easier to work the hives. But it's becoming clear that such close living is hurting our bees. Crowded apiaries experience such stresses as greater competition for local forage, higher risk of robbing, and even problems in reproduction, such as swarms combining if they leave at the same time, or a queen entering the wrong hive after a mating flight and being killed by that colony. But really, the greatest risk to our colonies is how close proximity fosters the transmission of disease, viruses and parasites, particularly things like the nasty varroa mite. Number three, colonies occupy small nest cavities versus large hives. This particular modification profoundly affects the ecology of bees. Beekeepers move to larger and larger hives because it allows us to maximise our honey crops. More bees means more honey. But in doing so, we have inadvertently affected natural selection by preventing swarming, which is the honeybee's natural reproductive process. Only strong, healthy colonies swarm in the wild, and we are purposefully hindering that ability. Even worse, large colonies suffer greater problems with varroa, in part because more brood means more hosts for varroa to reproduce, but also because swarming helps manage infestation by removing mites on the adult bees and causing a brood break. By changing the way in which honeybees live, we have directly affected their ability to fight off parasites. Now, as a quick side note, I have learned... um, about swarming in the sense that yes swarming is cutting down on varroa mites and when my nucleus colony swarmed and I missed it but I came in right after the new queen the virgin queen hatched and I found their mite count was ridiculously high that makes me wonder now well how much higher was it right before swarming and is there a chance that that level of varroa mites might have contributed in some part to the colony deciding that it was time to move on. I just don't know, but I'm thinking about that a lot. Number four, colonies live with versus without a nest envelope of antimicrobial plant resins. So propolis. The importance of propolis to the colony cannot be understated in my opinion. Honeybees living in nests without a propolis envelope have greater immune system activity, which can weaken them over time. 
While their little bodies are using up energy to fight off various infections, they are not as energetically able to attend to the everyday life of hive management and brood rearing. The propolis envelope clearly provides profound pathogen protection to the colony, and I dare you to say that five times fast. (laughs) Number five, colonies have thick versus thin nest cavity walls. Thick-walled nest cavities provide greater and better insulation, which lowers the colony cost of thermoregulation. The optimal brood nest range is 34.5 to 35.5 degrees Celsius, or 94 to 96 degrees Fahrenheit. And that narrow temperature range means that the colony must work to cool or heat the nest as needed. Therefore, insulation plays a vital role in thermoregulation cost. In a thick-walled tree cavity, the rate of heat transfer is four to seven times lower than for a managed colony living in a standard wooden hive. Number six, colonies have small and high versus large and low nest entrances. Larger entrances are harder to guard, making a colony more vulnerable to robbing and predation. Lower entrances are also more likely to be blocked by snow, causing airflow issues, as well as preventing bees from going on their cleansing flights. Low entrances also increase the chance of a sluggish winter bee crashing to the ground and becoming too cold to move. Number seven, colonies live with versus without plentiful drone comb. Beekeepers often inhibit the ability of their colonies to produce drones in order to boost their honey crop and also as a form of integrated pest management. However, this inhibits natural selection for colony health because it prevents the healthiest and strongest colonies from succeeding at passing on their genes via drones. We tend to think of drones as largely superfluous to a colony, but they're actually essential and an important component of overall health and survival. Number eight, colonies live with versus without a stable nest organisation. When we rearrange comb to expand the brood nest or prevent brood congestion, we're affecting the bees' natural nest organisation structure. Honeybees organise their nests with a consistent three-dimensional spatial structure, a dense brood nest that's surrounded by pollen with the periphery regions used for honey storage. This positioning enables efficient feeding of the brood, as well as assisting in the thermoregulation process of the colony. It is still not clearly known how much we are hampering our bees by rearranging their nests. Number nine, colonies experience infrequent versus sometimes frequent relocations. Migratory beekeeping can stress colonies by forcing the bees to learn new landmarks, as well as discovering locations of nectar, pollen and water. One study found that colonies moved overnight to a new location had slower weight gain in the following week than those in the stationary control colonies. Number 10. Colonies are rarely versus frequently disturbed. Although we cannot know exactly how often wild colonies are disturbed by predators such as bears, skunks, wasps, etc., we can assume that it's far less than managed colonies where we inspect them frequently in order to monitor them and directly affect their progress throughout the year. One study compared the weight between groups of colonies that were and were not inspected. Those that were disturbed gained 20 to 30% less weight than the control colonies. Number 11, colonies deal with familiar versus novel diseases. 
Human intervention and arguably our own carelessness has led to the transmission of many of the honeybee's fiercest threats. The varroa from Eastern Asia and the small hive beetle from Sub-Saharan Africa, as well as chalk brood fungus and tracheal mites from Europe. Before our meddling, honeybees evolved side by side with various parasites and pathogens locked in a natural arms race of a kind. Our introduction of foreign parasites has absolutely decimated these unprepared colonies, resulting in the deaths of millions of honeybee colonies, both wild and managed. Number 12. Colonies have diverse versus (laughs) homogenous pollen sources. Nailed it. A number of studies have looked at pollen diversity and its effects on honeybees. Nurse bees fed on monofloral pollen, so singular pollen sources, have shorter lifespans when exposed to nazema, which is a microsporidian parasite, when compared to nurse bees fed on polyfloral or multifloral blend of pollens. Many managed colonies are placed in situations where they are forced to consume almost entirely one single source of pollen, from the almond orchards to fields of rapeseed. This single source diet leads to poor nutrition for the colony, which directly affects its overall survival. Number 13, colonies have natural diets versus a fed artificial diets. Beekeepers will offer pollen substitutes in order to stimulate colony growth when natural sources are not quite as abundant. This is often done to meet the colony size requirement needed to fulfill pollination contracts and to produce a larger honey crop. But studies have shown that colonies stressed by a lack of pollen, as well as those fed a predominantly artificial diet, have shorter lifespans, early onset foraging and a shortened period of functional foraging. Number 14. Colonies are not exposed versus are exposed to novel toxins. Honeybee colonies, whether wild or managed, are now exposed to a wide range of pesticides, insecticides and fungicides, but they've not had time to evolve detoxification mechanisms to these chemicals. We're still learning how this ever-increasing number of products affects the honeybee and its health. And this is an area that thankfully there are a number of studies in, but it's still something that we need to monitor as beekeepers. Number 15. Colonies are not treated versus are treated for diseases. And just to directly quote here, when we treat our colonies for diseases, we interfere with the host parasite arms race between Apis mellifera and its pathogens and parasites. Which I quoted directly there because I think that's very succinctly put. But basically, in our attempt to assist our colonies, we're inadvertently weakening natural selection for disease resistance. Mitocides and antibiotics might interfere with the microbiomes of our colonies, and we're still learning the cumulative effect of various treatments. It's no surprise, then, why most managed colonies have shown little resistance to varroa mites, whereas completely untouched wild colonies have managed to produce stable populations despite the virulence of varroa. Number 16. Colonies are not managed versus are managed as sources of honey and pollen. In order to produce large amounts of honey, we need a big colony, which means a lot of space in part to prevent swarming. 
but this interferes with natural selection as well as increasing the risk of varroa infestation by providing lots of brood to be parasitized. So this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how the large hives that we're using which are so much larger than the nest cavities used by colonies in the wild is contributing to some of the problems that we're facing. Number 17 combs are not moved versus are moved between colonies. Moving combs between colonies is a common practice among beekeepers. I am definitely guilty of it as it provides many seeming benefits such as boosting or combining wheat colonies, distributing honey needed for winter, queen rearing, nucleus colony production and probably a couple of others that I'm forgetting. But the big problem when we do this is that it's vastly increasing the spread of disease and pathogens, and that's a real problem. Number 18, honey cappings are recycled by bees versus are harvested by beekeepers. The energetic expense of producing wax cannot be overstated. Approximately every kilogram, which is about two pounds of wax taken from a colony, costs about five kilograms or 10 pounds of honey. And that honey is now no longer available to feed the colony, get them through the winter or assist in brood rearing. Bees also spend a certain portion of their life producing wax, which takes a toll on their bodies. Think about it as wear and tear of factory equipment that needs to be taken into account when you consider the cost of production. The most energetically burdensome, burdensome? <laughs> the most energetically burdensome honey harvesting involves removing the entire comb, such as in cut comb or crushed comb honey. Extracted honey removes just the wax cappings, allowing a beekeeper to return the empty comb back into the hive. And as a little side note here, if you also extract at a lower speed, this is supposed to decrease the comb damage. And I have to run my um, extractor on low speed because I haven't bolted it to the ground. And I actually have found that there has been very minimal damage to the comb. Most of the damage is done when I was learning how to cut off the wax cappings effectively. So I do recommend if you're using frames with foundation, and a honey extractor if you can run it at a lower speed. Number 19, colonies are allowed versus are not allowed to choose the larva for rearing queens. So for those beekeepers out there who are raising their own queens, one day old larva are chosen at random or just by convenience when you select a frame. Honeybees, however, have shown to prefer larva from certain patrilines, which is the male ancestor genetic line, when rearing emergency queens, which seems to indicate that the bees are actually choosing the larva based on factors that could indicate larval health as well as genetic strength. And this kind of blew my mind when I read this because I never really thought about it. I guess I tend to think of larva as larva. You look at it, you can kind of guess how old it is and you're like, well, it's all the same, right? Whether the only key difference being whether it's worker or drone. But this raises a really, really good point. We don't know what we're choosing when we go in and we'd find that one day old larva, but the bees seem to. And for me, this would be a really interesting area of research. And I hope that there are people looking into it. And if not, I hope people will be soon because I would love to know if we can figure out what the bees look for when they select a larva to be a queen. Number 20, 
drones are allowed versus are not allowed to compete fiercely for matings. In a natural environment, drones fiercely compete against hundreds of other drones to succeed in mating with a virgin queen. This means that only the strongest and the fastest drones are successful in passing along their genes. When beekeepers use artificial insemination, the drones selected for their sperm have not proven their vigour via competition, and thus genetics are being passed along based on beekeeper choices or sheer convenience, as opposed to health and flight ability. And again, this is something that kind of blew my mind, but it makes more sense to me. We know that drones compete, so what are we looking for when we just select drones for artificial insemination? Are we looking to propagate specific genetic lines of things such as varroa sensitive hygiene or leg biting behaviors? Are we trying to go for those drones with like color genetics that we've touched on a little bit such as the Cordovan uh, line of bees? But if we let drones go ahead and compete, then we're ensuring that only the strongest and the fastest are able to do so. All right, next up, number 21, and this is the last one in this list. Drone brood is not removed versus is removed from colonies for mite control. Seeley refers to removing drone brood from colonies as partially castrating them as it interferes with natural selection by removing the male reproductive aspect of large healthy colonies that have the resources to rear and support drones. So this is all going back really into what we've touched on in other ways here. Removing drone brood is an important part of integrated pest management for many of us. We put in um, drone comb, we wait until the majority of the brood has been capped, we take it out, we feed it to our chickens or we freeze it, clear the comb, put it back. And it is a helpful way of dealing with varroa mites. But again, it comes back to this idea of if a colony is healthy enough to go into the energetic process of raising drones, we are both disposing of all that hard work and all that energy and we're also depriving other colonies in the area that are open mating from those stronger genetics. Is there an easy solution here? I'm not sure. (laughs) But let's listen on because he touches a little bit on this in the next section. And this section is suggestions for Darwinian beekeeping. This is what we need. This is the nitty gritty summarized to make it accessible to us. And particularly those of us who are interested in applying what we now know about the natural life cycle of the honeybee when it comes to managing our apiaries. Seeley points out that honeybees have lived independently of humans for millions of years, their biology being fine-tuned by natural selection to favour two things, colony survival and colony reproduction. Once humans began to keep bees for our own purposes, we've inadvertently disrupted the way in which honeybees interact with their natural environment. The main contributors of this disruption comes from migratory beekeeping practices, moving bee colonies to geographical locations for which they're not naturally adapted, and hive management that modifies the colony in order to maximise their production of those things that we value, such as honey, beeswax, pollen, royal jelly, pollination, etc., 
Celia also mentions that establishing a beekeeping method that is kinder on the bees and better supports their natural life cycle and health is easier for those of us who are backyard beekeepers with just a few hives, which we mainly keep for pleasure or to support the bees with honey as a nice side bonus. And I definitely consider myself one of those people. But for commercial keepers whose very livelihood relies on honey production or pollination contracts, they're going to have fewer options for pursuing a gentler approach to beekeeping. Celia stresses that the following are suggestions and suggests viewing them as ingredients for a personal recipe of Darwinian beekeeping. We all need to be realistic about what we're capable of achieving. So view the following list through that lens. Perhaps right now you can only adopt a few of these suggestions and practices and that's completely okay. Revisit the list later on and consider how you might be able to incorporate more over time. Personally, I think the best we can all do is keep an open mind and do our best to support our colonies with the resources that we have available to us right now. Number one, work with bees that are adapted to your location. So find local queen producers to get your queens from. Choose your best survivor colonies and make queens and or nucleus colonies from them. Set out bait hives and catch swarms. The goal is basically to source your genetic lines from colonies that have adapted to survive in your specific geographical location. Number two, space your hives as widely as possible. In chapter 10, we learned how important it is for colonies to be distanced from each other. In Ithaca, where Seeley did most of his studies and experiments, Seeley has found that wild colonies average a distance of 800 metres or half a mile between each other, which I'm not telling you to go out and space your colonies half a mile from each other because that's just not feasible. But thankfully for us, Seeley did discover that spacing colonies just 30 to 50 metres or about 100 to 160 feet apart greatly reduces the risk of bee drifting and thus reduces pathogen transmission between the hives. Although even this distance might not be possible for all of us, and I am definitely included in that list, we should consider space when we are positioning our hives and establishing our apiaries. I personally have, after this season, found myself wondering, are more colonies in a crowded apiary that puts them at risk of greater disease and reproductive issues really better than a few less at risk colonies that I've spaced widely apart? And I have learned that proximity is an issue and I don't just mean through reading this book. I have pointed out on my Instagram that I did end up placing some hives very close together and unsurprisingly those hives all share very similar mite loads. There has clearly been bee drifting particularly when I tried to move one of the hives and it's something that I regret because not only did I feel cramped in the space but I know it's contributed to this transmission of varroa and it's contributed to robbing behavior which then also contributes to varroa transmission. So it's something that I'm going to to be much more mindful of moving forward and I hope I can improve and space my colonies even further apart than they are right now. Number three, house your colonies in small hives. So Celia actually suggests aiming for one deep hive body for the brood nest and one median honey super over a queen excluder for your honey crop. Although this will naturally result in a much more modest honey harvest, it also reduces the colony's risks of parasites and pathogens, particularly varroa. 
This is true if you allow your colony to swarm, as this removes some of the adult mites and provides a brood break. So, side note, yes, if you keep your hives in just one deep hive body with one medium honey super for your personal harvesting needs, your colony's going to swarm. So here is what I thought about when I read that. If I keep them in smaller hives, they're going to swarm, so what are my options? My first option would be that I could set out bait hives all around where I'm keeping my colonies in the hopes of luring in those swarms. The other option is that you can artificially swarm your hives by removing the mother queen and 50 to 70% of the worker bees the minute you notice that those swarm cells have been created. By moving the swarm to a hive elsewhere, you are mimicking that natural life cycle to continue while also maintaining control over the swarm's final location. Now, I'm not saying that this would be perfect. I'm sure that if we move to smaller hives, we are going to risk losing some to swarming. But it might be something that really is accessible. In fact, it could be the most accessible suggestion so far for many of us who are keeping bees because we just really really love them and the honey is just a really nice kind of side benefit number four roughen the inner wall surfaces of your hives or build them of rough sawn lumber and this is to stimulate the colony to create a propolis envelope which will provide important antimicrobial benefits And I am actually popping out tomorrow to get some sandpaper and I'm going to roughen up the inner wall surfaces of all of my new boxes that I'm waiting to use. And as the colonies reduce down, um, as they prepare for winter, I will, any boxes that come off, I'm going to do the same with those. And I will let you know how things progress in the spring. Number five, use hives whose walls provide good insulation. Options for this could include using thick lumber or plastic foam. And Seeley notes that this is actually a very important area of future study because it's really not known how much insulation is best for colonies in varied climates and also how we can provide this. Now, if you live in the northern areas like I do, um, you are probably providing insulation over winter. This is more about year round insulation. And I'm gonna have to have a really good think about what this is going to look like um, and how I could consider adding to this. So if I figure something out, I will let you guys know. Number six, position hives high off the ground. Now, obviously this one is going to be pretty tricky for most of us, but if anyone out there has like a higher porch or a flat roof that is secure, you could set some colonies up there. And since hive height relates directly to hive entrance height, I would also suggest that we always allow an upper entrance on our hives, which many of us already provide over the winter period, but it could be a good idea for us all to consider allowing an upper entrance throughout the year and keeping that very large lower entrance minimized throughout the year. Number seven, allow colonies to maintain 10 to 20% of the comb in their hives as drone comb. Rearing drones is energetically expensive. And so it's only the strongest colonies that are going to do this. When we allow them to do this, we are supporting the genetic health of honeybees in our particular area. 
Since we know that drone comb is preferred by the Faroa mite, allowing an increased amount of drone brood means very carefully checking for mites and monitoring infestation levels. So if you are going to do this, it is not for someone who is in their hive a handful of times a year. It's for someone who can do alcohol wash or sugar rolls and check those mite levels at regular periods to make sure that they're not becoming out of control. And just as a side note here, um, I have traditionally used the plastic, it's like an all plastic frame with a plastic foundation for drone comb. Because when I looked into drone comb, that was what was available. And what's interesting is my first year, so last year when I actually kept bees for the very first time, my colonies used it and they actually used it quite frequently. So I would take the comb out, freeze it, give it to the chickens and then put it back as part of my integrated pest management. This year, the bees don't like them. And I'm not sure if it's because they have a lot more drawn comb to use now and they're not really interested in drawing combs on this frame if they really don't need to. Or if it's the plastic, because my other frames have wood frames and then plastic foundation, I don't know. But there is a noticeable trend in the apiary that none of them really like it. And someone on Instagram, I want to say it's... um. S-A-T-X bees, which I'm assuming is like South Texas bees. That's a really great Instagram account, by the way. I definitely recommend following them. They mentioned that what they do is they put a medium frame into a deep hive body and then the girls draw the comb off the end to fill the space and they tend to draw that comb as drone comb. And I thought that was brilliant. And so that's what I'm going to be experimenting with next year. And As always, I will report back and let you know how I get on. Number eight, minimize disruptions of nest structure. So the functional organization of each colony's nest is maintained. And this basically means refrain from inserting empty comb between the brood frames in order to inhibit swarming and be careful when doing inspections to always replace each frame back in its original configuration. So the same spot in the same orientation. Number nine, minimize the moving of colonies. Moving colonies affects not just the forager's ability to find new food sources and water sources, but it also disrupts the colony's regular functions, including thermoregulation and brood care. So if you can avoid moving your colonies, I would do so. Number 10, locate your colonies as far as possible from flowers that are contaminated with insecticides and fungicides and I'm sure this is something that most of us are already doing Uh, by housing our colonies far away from treated plants we're helping to reduce the risk of foragers bringing contaminants back to the colony now I will say as a backyard beekeeper you cannot control what your neighbors do and I completely understand that but if you are able to sign up for a number of counties and communities have no spray lists, sign up for that. If you know your neighbours, maybe talk to them about whether they are spraying, um, maybe sweeten them up with a little jar of honey and talk to them about what, you know, why honeybees are important. If you can get the word out there in any way to help limit how much is being sprayed in your area, I do think overall it's going to be a big benefit for you. Um, There's nothing, I mean, I haven't experienced this yet, touch wood, but I've seen other beekeepers lose colonies when they 
bring back contaminated pollen or nectar and it's so sad and if we can just get a little bit more education out there about why people shouldn't spray it would be a huge improvement for all of us number 11 locate your colonies in places that are surrounded as much as possible by natural areas such as wetlands forests abandoned fields moorlands and the like So these areas are less likely to have been contaminated by pesticides and fungicides. They provide a diverse source of pollen and nectar, and they can also provide fresh water and propolis. I feel very fortunate because at the back of my property is um, totally, I want to say like abandoned uh, woods. It's just a wooded area. It gets kind of swampy. No one uses it because of the swampiness. It's just all trees back there, which are great. And I'm not very far away from a park, which um, has a ton of goldenrod blooming. And I'm in a rural residential area. So there's also a number of um, untreated fields, abandoned fields. The roadsides are mowed infrequently. So there's a lot of wildflowers and the like. And I think that's very fortunate. And it's why I see such great uh, pollen pants on my girls. Number 12, when you need additional colonies, acquire them by capturing swarms with bait hives or by making splits from your strong colonies and letting them conduct emergency queen rearing and natural queen mating. So this allows your bees to choose the larva for future queens and it ensures that the strongest and fastest drones in your particular area are the ones mating with the virgin queens. And this is how I have done my queen rearing so I don't rear queens in the sense that I'm not scooping up lava I'm not creating a lot of queens in a queen bank none of that stuff it's very complicated it's very fiddly and it just makes my brain hurt and it feels like a more advanced area of beekeeping what I like to do is I like to make little nucleus colonies or splits and then make sure that the girls have the lava available to choose what they want to make and It has been a very interesting experiment for me. Uh, This is my first year doing it. Although I did have a hive that raised their own queen last year and then sadly she perished over the winter. But this year making nucleus colonies and seeing how they work. um, it, It was interesting how many times a nucleus colony pulled queen cells and then pulled those queen cells down and made new ones. And I always wonder... What did they sense in those developing queens? What what kind of messages were they getting? Or what could they smell? Or however it works, they decided, oh, no, 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 this isn't working. Let's make some more. So basically, if you can do that, if you can let your bees choose the larva and then let them open mate with the drones in your area, that is a benefit to the health of your bees. Number 13 minimize pollen trapping and honey harvesting from your colonies it's pretty simple in the sense that these are valuable resources for our colonies and when we take them we are lowering their success by reducing their survival and or their reproduction if any of you I mean this is where it gets tricky isn't it because if some of you rely on the money from your honey sales I'm not going to tell you in this middle of the pandemic and how difficult it is, so many people out of work, and our economy in the crapper, I'm not going to tell you, well, I'm sorry, but if you really loved your bees, you need to cut back on your honey harvest. No, I totally understand that you have a livelihood, 
And if that plays into it, you do you. There are other things on this list that you can do to help your personal bees. And I hope you consider them. And if they're feasible, I hope that you go ahead with them. But for those of us like me who are just like, oh my God, bees are like the coolest thing ever. And I just want to hang with them. I just love them so much. We could take a little less honey, right? If we're not relying on the livelihood, if we don't really, really need the extra money, or we're not like consuming gallons and gallons of honey in our baking or tea drinking, then take a little less and see what happens. Um, I think I mentioned, I took what I consider a modest honey harvest this year and I got like two big buckets full. Um, I think my first thing was what, like 35.5 or 45.5, something like that. And my next one was in the similar vein. So, and I have a lot and I actually just started just selling it to some friends and, you know, people in the area because I'm not going to use it all. And that's from a very modest amount. I think um, two and a half mediums, 10 frame, I think is what that was. So yeah, if you could take a little less, give it a go and see what happens. Number 14, refrain from treating colonies for Varroa. Okay, so this is actually the last one. This is his big key point here. So we've seen that colonies can eventually, through natural selection, acquire resistance mechanisms to Varroa within about five years if left completely untreated by mitocides. We also know that this process will involve extremely heavy losses from 80 to 90%, leaving just a few colonies alive that are then able to survive and eventually self-sustain. So if you remember, we were learning about the Gotland bees in a previous chapter and how in the original five-year study, they went from 150 hives down to, what was it, I think, 15 or 12. And then over the next 10 years, where they just checked in on those hives, they found that they were back up to about 30 to 35 completely self-sustaining colonies. So over a 15-year period, it went from 150 colonies to 30 to 35 colonies. Now, Seeley points out that this can only be done if you commit to extremely diligent beekeeping practices. You must test for Varroa. You must monitor the infestation levels in your colonies. By not doing this and simply just refusing to treat, you will create a situation that favours the Varroa mite, not your bees. And to avoid this, it means that you absolutely must kill colonies who are experiencing uncontrolled infestations before they collapse and then spread Varroa to surrounding colonies. I know I've said this before and I cannot stress this enough. You have a responsibility to the colonies that live around you, whether those are wild colonies or managed colonies. If you are unwilling to euthanize a hive because excuse me, if you're unwilling to euthanize a hive before they can cause damage, then it's your duty to treat and to use a miticide and prevent that colony from becoming a quote unquote mite bomb. If you are in that situation where you have to treat, it's also advised that after treatment, you replace that queen with one from a mite resistant genetic line. So you don't have to give up on mite resistance when you treat. There are other ways to go into it. And I was so just overjoyed when I read this from Seeley because when I got into beekeeping, I looked into quote unquote natural beekeeping. 
And it went completely headfirst into all this stuff I was learning about Varroa. And I would see people on various Facebook communities and online forums talking about how they never treat and they don't need to treat and how, um, you know, bees are magic and bees will magically be able to survive and all this kind of stuff. And people would say, well, what are your Varroa mite levels? Oh, I don't know. Well, how do you know you're not infesting other people? Well, that's their problem, you know, and so on and so on. And I always had a problem with it because it was so unknown. It was so like, well, I'm just not doing this, but I'm not going to monitor the like the effects of not doing it. And it also was so irresponsible. Well, I don't care about my beekeeper down the road. I don't care about wild colonies because I have to just be responsible for myself. Well, yes, but you know, we're all in this together, right? We all love honeybees and therefore let's responsibly consider how we can create resistance. And now here is this scientist, Thomas Seeley. He did all the work for us, guys. He did all the studying. He did all the testing. And he's saying, look, here are the methods that you can use if you want to end up with mite resistant bees. But you cannot be selfish. You have to think about how your actions affect those around you. And I think I've said before, but I consider myself to be just as responsible to my bees as I am to my neighbour's bees and as I am to wild colonies. And so when you look at everything we've talked about and you look at your options for varroa management, my big thing that I would really like you to remember is just please think of your community of beekeepers and wild colonies when you make your decisions. So closing thoughts. And I'd actually like to break from tradition here where I summarise Celie's words. And I'd like to have you just quote this section of the book directly. It's about two pages, but I really think it's important to hear the author's own words. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to read out what Celie has to say at the end of his book. All right, I just had a big gulp of tea, so I should be able to get through this now. So here is Thomas Celie's closing thoughts. I hope you've enjoyed this review of what we know about how honeybees live in nature. We have seen that Apis mellifera remains an untamed creature and that the step from a beekeeper's hive to a tree's hollow remains a short one for these small beings. We have also seen that a honeybee colony is a marvellously integrated living system that has been shaped by natural selection to meet the challenges of getting rooted in a carefully chosen home site and then surviving and reproducing there for several years. In looking at how a wild colony builds its nest, acquires its food, keeps itself warm, rears its young, defends itself from intruders and passes on its genes by casting swarms and rearing drones, we have learned that a colony of honeybees presents us with countless mysteries. How does it control the type of comb it builds, at first worker comb but eventually also drone comb? How does it control the emptying and filling of its drone comb cells with honey in relation to the season? How does it know when to switch on its brood rearing in midwinter and then to switch it off again in early autumn? How does it decide when to swarm? And then when it decides to do so, how does it control the proportion of bees that leave in the swarm, the swarm fraction? And why does a colony seal up its nest cavity with propolis so tightly at the end of summer? Is it so that moisture will condense on its cavity walls and thereby provide its members with drinking water all winter long? These and countless other questions about the lives of colonies living in the wild remind us that the behaviour and social life of honeybees still holds many secrets.
If you're a beekeeper, then I hope too that this tour of the astonishing natural history of honeybees has inspired you to consider pursuing beekeeping in a way that focuses less on treating a honeybee colony as a honey factory or pollinating unit, and more on admiring it as an amazing form of life. More than any other insect, the honeybee has the power to capture our hearts and connect us emotionally with the workers, excuse me, and connect us emotionally with the wonders and mysteries of nature. We love these beautifully social bees. We want them in our backyards and many of us cannot bear the idea of living without them. All of us who admire honeybees are seeking ways to improve their lives. This is of vital importance because as the human population approaches a billion, we need the pollination services provided by honeybees more than ever before. A recent and authoritative study of the crop production values of different species of bees has concluded that the honeybee provides nearly half of all crop pollination services worldwide. This means that Apis mellifera contributes to agriculture almost as much as the hundreds of other crop pollinating bee species combined. It also means that the honeybee deserves special care. One way we can conserve Apis mellifera is to protect forest lands, for these provide habitat for wild colonies. The persistence of honeybee colonies living in woodlands in the Americas, Africa and Europe, despite the spread of the deadly mite Varroa destructor, shows us that honeybees are remarkably resilient. It also shows us that if we can serve forests in other wild places, then we can be confident that wild colonies of honeybees will thrive and provide an important reservoir of this species' genetic diversity. A second way that we can improve the lives of honeybees is to revise our treatment of the millions of colonies that live not in the wild but in our hives. This is the goal of what I have called Darwinian beekeeping, and others have called natural beekeeping, apicentric beekeeping and bee-friendly beekeeping. Whatever the name, the aim is the same, to put the needs of the bees before those of the beekeeper. This happens when a beekeeper's manipulations of the bees are done with bee-friendly intentions and in ways that harmonise the bees' natural history. Conventional beekeeping, however, continues to develop along a trajectory that disrupts and endangers the lives of honeybee colonies. Therefore, to truly help the bees, we must do more than just keep the world healthy for them. We must also build a new relationship between human beings and honeybees, one that promotes the health of the millions of managed colonies that we depend on to produce our food. Darwinian beekeeping, which combines respecting the bees and using them for practical purposes, seems to me to be a good way for us to be responsible stewards of the honeybee, Apis mellifera, our greatest friend amongst the insects. And that's it. That's the end of the book. Thank you so much for sticking with me. I really hope that this was of use to you and gave you some stuff to think about because I, I have to say, you know, I've read a few books. There are a lot of really great practical beekeeping guides out there. But this book, the sheer wealth of information, the depth it goes into about so many things and really the key focus on the Roa mite resistance is absolutely incredible. And I do see it being something that I'm going to come back to. And as much as I sometimes regret having said I would do this chapter by chapter, because it has been a lot of work and trying to balance this on top of everything else that I do was a little tricky. Um, it was so valuable because 
not only can I go back and listen to my own episodes if I want to brush up on something, but reading through the book once and then going back, making these notes and then reading them and recording has been a really great way for me to assimilate this information. Um, I know I've said before, Thomas Seeley is probably a beekeeper and bee scientist that I admire the most. Um, I would love to have the chance to meet him. I have Honeybee Democracy, which is one of his very famous books. And I'm going to be pulling as many papers and books and stuff from him as I can, because I just love all of that. So thank you for bearing with me. I know this took us a while, but I really think it was worth doing. I'm really proud of it. Um, I'm really happy to be done with it (laughs) and move on to the next thing. So I haven't chosen my next book. I have a couple of options and both of them are mainly about top bar beekeeping, um, which is something I'll be experimenting with next year. And I know a number of my listeners do top bar beekeeping and it's um, such a great way of keeping bees. And it's so different to what we do with our Langstroth and other sort of vertical beekeeping style so very excited to get um get on with that I'll let everyone know obviously what I decide to do hopefully in two weeks I'm going to have some good news for you about what's going on in my own apiary I would really hope that I'll be back here saying mites are back under control things are looking good we're getting ready for winter um as always you can find me on social media um I am on homestead hens and honey is my handle on Instagram. You can email me at homesteadhensandhoney, all one word, at gmail.com. In the episode description, I will link to my website, as I always do, which will have some photos and uh, the text that I read out today. So if you need to refer back to anything, you can find it there. And for those of you who intercept between my reptile life (laughs) and my beekeeping life, um, I am working on a new website for my business, Girardi Gems. Um, I have had a lot of search engine issues with this website that I I set up and people have a really hard time finding me. They only really seem to find me on Facebook and that's caused some problems. So I am building a Google site and I am updating the website. I'm using this opportunity to update the website with care sheets, Uh, which are specific to the species as a whole and then how to set up your new skink and the baby, the juvenile, the adult stage. I'm eventually going to get to some information about breeding and things like seasonal activities. We're going into a dormancy period for a number of reptiles right now and that's going to be on the new website and I'll share a link to that when I have it. So if those of you who are interested in the reptile side of my world, keep an eye out. I'll have that going. And depending on how the new site goes, I might end up moving my homesteading blog as well. But again, I'll let you know. So go into the um, episode description, follow that website, go look at some pickies and read through everything that's been discussed today. So if you need to refer back to something, it's right there. Um, And that's it. So thank you so much for listening, for reading along, for communicating with me on social media. I love to hear from you guys. I've actually formed some really great relationships with people thanks to the podcast and actually thanks through to my (laughs) 
uh, reptile breeding business. It's really great. Um, so thank you. I feel like we're kind of a small community, but we're very supportive of each other. And I really feel that. Um, I really appreciate all the well wishes for my little uh, wrist wound from my little fall. And like I said, everything's on the mend and I'm doing it a lot better. So I will be back here in two weeks, nattering on at you in my British southern accent um and i hope to have chosen a book by then and i will definitely have hive news i hope all of you out there with bees are getting along well that your mite levels are way better than mine and that you're getting ready for the winter and as always hug your hens and then wash your hands take care of yourselves talk to you in two weeks bye bye